Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and if you have been with us, we've had an incredible journey. This morning, we're going to look at a subject that I've entitled Managing the Mysteries of Life. And most of you know that uh, life from time to time has a number of mysteries attached to them. Some of those mysteries are quite small, like uh, where are my keys? Uh, I am convinced that there is an alien being in my keys, and when I'm not around, it comes to life and sneaks away. Then there are the other things like, where is the remote? That's a good name for it, remote, because that's what it is in our house. Very remote, very distant, hiding all the time under a sofa somewhere. Then there are those kind of mysteries that are funny. The mystery of lines, like uh, traffic lines or food lines or bank teller lines. How come it, how come it uh, to be that every time I maneuver myself in what I think is the best line, it always stops. Have you ever wondered that? There's a mystery there at McDonald's or wherever that uh, the line I choose or the lane I get into of traffic always slows down the minute I get there. Then there's the mystery of socks. You can take five beautifully harmonious pairs of socks and drop them in a washer and then in a dryer and they come out as six individualistic kind of Socks that are attached to no one. You don't know where the other guys went, but this group doesn't like each other and doesn't associate with each other. Then there's the mysteries that are controversial, like uh, UFOs, uh, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, Jimmy Hoffa. Where is Jimmy? We all want to know, don't we? Then there are those mysteries that are life-changing. They come crashing into our lives, sometimes very unannounced and unexpected, and they won't go away. And some of those shake us to the very core of our existence. They demand a response from us when what we really want is for them to give us an answer. But for those kind of mysteries, they refuse to give answers. And so we are left staring at them, having to come to terms with them and deal with them, even in light of the mystery that they bring to us and the answers that they refuse to give to us. Those mysteries are life-changing. And how we come to terms with them mean for us better or worse. When I was a young man, I used to uh, play basketball. This is in my grade school years at a place called the Bobby James Memorial Gym. I didn't think much about that when I was in the third, fourth, and and fifth grade. But I do remember going into the gym, and and it was a little four-year opening into the gym, and there were pictures of this guy named Bobby James. And over to the left was a trophy case. And in the trophy case, I remember walking by and noticing that those trophies were all to Bobby James. Some of them were high school All-Americans. Some of them were... uh, Uh, All Southwest Conference. At that time, I didn't know what the Southwest Conference was, but it said All Southwest Conference. There was one, I remember, that said Sophomore of the Year in the SWC. And then there was one that said Honorable Mention All-American. 
Well, one day when I got a little older, I think it was the sixth grade, I asked my mom, who was Bobby James? And she said, well, he's a mystery son. You see, uh, Bobby was the only son of a very prominent couple here in our town, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bill James. Now, I happen to know Bill James. We called him Mr. Bill. He was one of the patriarchs of our city from a very wealthy family. He headed one of the largest construction companies in the United States, T.L. James Construction Company. He was a very generous philanthropist. And I got to know him in my later years when I got into college when I wanted to go to a Campus Crusade uh, summer training program and I didn't have the money. And I took the chance in going in to see Mr. Bill up at the T.L. James building and he listened to my little plea and opened his drawer and wrote me out a check and said, take a friend. So I did. He was a very devout Methodist, very committed to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and his son Bobby was kind of the all-American hero of Ruston in the 1950s. Great student, great looking, and a great athlete. And when he went to SMU in his freshman year, he turned kind of the basketball world there on its head. In his junior year, he came home to Ruston to celebrate the Christmas holidays with his family. And he and the family dog were back in the back room watching television one evening when the parents were gone and evidently Bobby fell asleep and the next few moments he awoke and there were flames all around the back end of the house and he found himself trapped inside and well you kind of know the rest of the story it's the Bobby James Memorial Gym and for Christmas that year Mr. Bill and his wife received one of those life-changing mysteries that are mind-boggling and soul-rattling. Why? Why? Why our son? Why like this? In fact, I remember my mom that day I asked about Bobby James, drove me by the James home. It sits elegantly on a kind of a lofty hill there in Ruston, and she pointed to the back side of the house where the fire had occurred years before, and now it was all glass. It was like a hothouse filled with flowers year-round for a fallen son. Kind of a shrine of sorts, as was the Bobby James Memorial Gym that they built in his honor for a mystery. It's one of the mysteries of life. You know, moments like these confront us head-on with deep questions, don't they? I mean, you can grow up in a church with theology, but one of those kind of mysteries come knocking at your door and it shakes you down to the foundation about life about God, about what you believe, about faith. It's why Rabbi Harold Kirshner, when he wrote the book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, why that book became an instantaneous bestseller, even though I don't agree with a lot of the conclusions there. But people wanted to know why these mysteries. And can we count on anything? Is God good? Is life? Is there anything under control? Or is it just all blind chance, chaos, mere coincidence? that make life really terminal and meaningless. doesn't matter what you believe in those moments because you have to come to terms with that mystery. Before we look into Solomon's mysteries, because he had some mysteries that he was chewing on in chapter 8, I want to offer you two what I call foundational truths about life in general that I've come to understand. Watching people and being involved in a lot of their mysteries. Here's the first one. Life is predictable. Life is predictable, and we're glad for that. There's a certain stability in the predictability of life. 
In fact, Galatians 6-7 affirms that. It says, do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Don't you kind of like that? I mean, that at least gives us something to hang on to. Whatever you sow, that you're going to reap. And that creates some foundational stability to life. So if you work out, you'll lose weight. If you don't, you won't. No matter how much fat-free stuff you eat. If you give to others, you're going to find that in sowing that, you're going to reap the fact that in time, people begin to give back to you. It's one of the foundational principles of life. If you work hard, you'll make it. If you're faithful at your job, they've discovered as they've done all kinds of sociological surveys, if you get a high school degree and work hard, you'll do well in life. Period. If you lie and deceive people, you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. If you commit immorality in time, because I've seen it, no matter how much you think you're getting away with it, in time, you're not going to just hurt others. You're going to hurt yourself. You live righteously, and in time, you live righteously long enough, and others are going to be blessed by you and changed by you, and you're going to start experiencing a deeper and deeper satisfaction in life. One of the things I'd love to tell young people that only believe me, in being a Christian 25 years, in watching other people's lives, my life has a deep satisfaction to it that I had to bet on by faith 25 years ago. But I'm enjoying life. And I count it to the glory of God in the sowing and reaping principle. Life has these predictable patterns to it, but unfortunately, especially for the Christian, if he or she is not careful, you can turn this general pattern into a God. You can make it a false security blanket. You can make it your own insurance policy that you almost use to control God. It almost changes and becomes bigger than God. If I do all these things, life is going to go perfect for me. I'll just name it and claim it. I'll just pray enough and I'll always get it. It'll guarantee me health and wealth. I'll tithe and it'll guarantee me personal success in every way, uninterrupted. There are people who will tell you that. If I obey the rules, nothing bad will happen to me. I can buffet God and evil with that. I won't get sick. I won't have terminal disease. My kids will turn out right and my marriage will be great. I just stick with the rules. The principle goes from being a general pattern to an absolute until the mystery comes. Listen. Life is predictable, but there's not one of us here that can make it mechanical. You can't manipulate life with that principle. The Christian who seeks to control God with this kind of principle is in for a rude, faith-shattering awakening that will turn you on your head. Now, there's an equal truth to that. Second kind of foundational truth, and that is part of life is unpredictable. You're a Christian hero. You've looked up to your whole life and has done so many wonderful things. Runs off with another woman. Your Christian business partner. Gotten that deal and, man, we're going to have a Christian company and all that. Now you found out he swindled you. And now he's even suing you. 
Your fervent prayer that you've prayed for for years is finally answered. Except the answer that came is the exact opposite of what you prayed for. Tragedy will strike. And amazingly, who it struck was the perfect Christian family in your mind. See, in these bewildering mysteries of the unpredictable and the undeserved, it's easy to shift from this I can control God with this absolute sowing and reaping principle to now we shift and turn the coin completely over and now it's to blaming God for everything wrong in life. God's not good. Life is meaningful. You become bitter and cynical. Life becomes gray and cruel and ugly. And I just say to myself, well, que sera, sera, I'll just do what I want. Listen, part of life is unpredictable. But no one should make life miserable. Miserable. Most of you know the tragic story of Christopher Reeves, the handsome, dashing, muscular actor who a few years ago had his identity kind of fused with a superhero in the movies that he starred in called Superman. But that was before the horse riding accident, right? And now what you find is this one-time merger of identities seems more like a contradiction in terms. Superman? Superman the paraplegic? Superman who's on the breathing machine? Superman who's powerless from the waist down? Is that not a cruel joke, a cruel irony of life? to go from being the superhero to the impotent one? And yet never was Reeves more like Superman than when he was interviewed after the tragedy in his life by Barbara Walters. And she asked him, she said, basically, how are you managing this mystery? And he said this, this world is either a world of meaningless chaos or everything has a purpose. I choose to believe the latter and I intend to find my purpose in it. Do you hear a guy managing the mystery? Everyone has to manage a mystery from time to time because life, at least part of it's unpredictable. But it doesn't have to be miserable because even in the unpredictable, there's life. But you have to learn how to find it and then manage it. Managing the mysteries of life is part of what Solomon is dealing with when you come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, I want you to turn there if you're not already there. I'm going to be looking at verses uh, 10 through 17. Now, the guys asked me to preach all of the chapter, all of chapter 8. And uh, yes, it is true that Bill Parkey last week did all of chapter 7, but I'm only going to do verses 10 through 17. And you might ask, why? Well, in keeping with the story that was told about me last week, now, some of you won't get that if you weren't here last week. But in keeping with the story last week, I just want you to hear me. Who am I to do all of chapter 8? <laughs> what I'd like to talk about is the last few verses of the text. So I'm going to do the last. In fact, I'm going to go to the very end to start with. And I want to look at verses 16 and 17 where Solomon is offering this conclusion to some mysteries he's been dealing with, but he's thinking of it more in terms of a person who thinks he can manage it through knowledge. 
He says, when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which had been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep night and day if he's really going to do that, I saw every work of God and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Now what he's saying there is what the Living Bible translates to help in verse 17. Of course, only God can see everything, and even the wisest man who knows everything doesn't. I enjoyed one day when a man drew a big circle for me and said, if this is all knowledge, how much do you know? I put a little dot in there, and he said, you're close. We would like to have wisdom be an antidote for the mysteries. Somehow you could know enough or research enough to answer every question. But I'm going to tell you, it's a vain pursuit then and it's a vain pursuit now. Even if you, according to verse 16, never slept, you'll never answer all the mysteries of life because those mysteries defy our understanding and our explanation. This life is going to always drop in from time to time into your life these dramas that have to be managed, but they can't be fully explained. Now back in verse 10, Solomon introduces us to the first of three mysteries that he's chewing on. The first is what I call the mystery of undone justice. Let me read verse 10. It says, So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Now look at that verse. Do you understand that? I don't. And so I had to go and get some Hebrew scholars to help me because something seems to be missing and most Hebrew scholars say, yeah, there is something missing. And it's probably in the second half of the verse when you see, and they, and they. A lot of Hebrew scholars think that a word's left out there. It should be talking about the righteous, that there's a contrast and comparison going on here. And so it would read like this. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who go in and out of the holy place, while the righteous, they are forgotten in the very city where they did right things. That baffles him. I've seen that. You've seen that. You go to a funeral of somebody who you know has lived his life for himself. And he's got a string of wounds that he's left behind and things that he's done wrong. But here we are at the funeral. And are you going to get up and talk about what a wretch this guy was? No, you don't do that. When they're buried, even the ones who are hypocrites, religious hypocrites, you don't get up there and say, this guy was a hypocrite. See? No, what you do is you, you gloss over that life. And what you do is you find the things that were good and you embellish and accentuate that. While at the same time that's taking place, the really righteous, I'm talking about the really righteous, the saints among us, who are living a godly life, oftentimes throughout their whole life, they don't get any public recognition at all. Now what's the justice in that? That we celebrate an unrighteous man in his death and never mention a really righteous saint in their godly lifestyle. Solomon says, that troubles me, the justice in that. And what's worse, look at verse 11, he says, because the sentence against an evil deed, that is judgment against an evil deed, is not executed quickly, therefore it allows the hearts of the sons of men among us to give themselves fully to do evil. Is that not true? 
You see people go out and they do evil things and you, you think that should be punished. That should be dealt with. Whether it's tragedies in a Bosnian government or, or some friend who's living a licentious lifestyle, you think, when is that going to stop? And when it doesn't, it puts a thought in your mind and that is, well, maybe I can get away with it too. Maybe God doesn't even judge those kind of things. What's worse, maybe there is no justice. So you have a Christian husband suddenly just walk away from his Christian family. Everybody's shocked. So the church begins to pray, and they pray this man who's abandoned his wife and abandoned his families and his responsibilities that somehow he judgment would fall in such a way that he'd become so miserable or see the errors of his way that he would turn from his wicked way and turn back to his family. But you see him a year later after all those fervent prayers have gone out. And you run into him one day and you ask him how he's going. And he says to you, it's never been better. Never been happier. In fact, I've got the sweetest young thing that I'm dating right now and I'd love for you to meet her. There's mystery in that, isn't there? You say, where's their justice? Or maybe if you're struggling in your own marriage, you say, maybe there's a way for me too. Because when a sentence is not executed quickly, it entertains the idea in the hearts of men to fully give themselves to do evil. Undone justice is a mystery. That's why when O.J. Simpson so-called walked, the whole nation kind of reared back and started struggling. What does that mean? You begin to think maybe Robert Frost, the poet, was right when he defined a jury as 12 people chosen to, to decide who has the best lawyer. And you grieve over the justice of our land. Why don't you listen? Psalm 50 throws some light on that. You don't have to turn back there, but Psalm 50 throws some light on that mystery. Just a little light. As God speaks to the hypocrisy of evil men, He says, You have disregarded my laws. You see a thief and you help him. You associate with adulterers. You curse and lie, and vile language streams out of your mouth. You slander your own brother. And in all of this, I, the living God, have remained silent. And you thought, I didn't care. But your time will come. Silence is a hard mystery when it comes to the justice of God. And some, probably some here today are struggling with God's silence when they want justice. And as glib as this may sound, let me just say, God understands that. He does. And He wants you to grapple with that, but He has not forgotten you, nor has He forgotten His justice. There's a second baffling mystery to Solomon. It's the mystery of unfair results. It's found in verse 14. If you'll look there, it says, There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. They do right, but the results is wickedness. Judgment. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is mystery and futility. Several years ago, I attended the wedding of... Uh, John Ray and Michelle White. It was over at St. James United Methodist Church. It was a glorious wedding. I'd just flown in from Dallas and gotten to the church late, but got to see that glorious service as most are. The service ended, everybody left, and I bumped into an old friend and ended up staying and talking after everybody had cleared out. So Sherrod and I, this gentleman and a doctor, Mike Kendron, we were really the only ones left. 
So we all got in our car and headed for the reception, and then just as we pulled out on Pleasant Valley Drive, which has a dividing section in it with trees, we saw blinding lights and heard a humongous crash. Now it wasn't us, but then there was just this kind of awful stillness. And uh, we jumped out of our car, Mike and I did, and uh, recognized that right across the street was a car wrapped around a tree. So we ran up to the tree and uh, looked inside the car, and here were three young teenage boys. The one who was sitting in the back was the one that was most critically injured because that's where the impact occurred. And he was literally fused with the glass and the steel and the wood. And he just sat there and quivered. And Mike and I frantically tried to pull back some of that. We couldn't do it. We couldn't even budget. And so Mike held his pulse as I raced and called for an ambulance or 911. I remember I got back and we sat and watched that young man die. You know, the next day I discovered in the discussion that flowed out of that that this young man didn't even know the two guys who were driving. He just kind of met up with him. He was a clean living baseball player that probably was going to be scholarship bound. And he, he met up with them as a group of them got together and he asked these two guys if they would just take him home, which was just right down the street. But they were knee walking drunk. There were beer cans all in the front seat. So as they crested that hill by St. James, they just put the pedal to the metal for just one little thrill that cost him his life. And the other two walked. When you look at verse 14, you see the word happens. It's a literally the Hebrew word strikes. And really what it's talking about is here's this innocent young man who struck down as if he did the deeds of the wicked. <laughs> and conversely, the wicked sometimes strike it rich. The absolute reversal of the more general principle, reap what you sow. Let me tell you, that bothered Solomon. You know what? That bothers me. I don't know about you, that bothers me. That really bothers me. That's why in Rabbi Kirshner's book he writes, the misfortune of good people are not only a problem to the people who suffer in their families. They are a problem to everyone who wants to believe in a just, fair, and livable world. They inevitably raise questions about the goodness, the kindness, even the existence of God. You've got to manage mysteries like that if you're going to live well in the world. But God says in His Word, I understand those mysteries. I'm not going to necessarily answer all of them but I will enter in if you'll just allow me. There's a third mystery that's found in verse 15. You might call it the mystery of untimely pleasure. Solomon says, So I commended pleasure, for there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry. And you almost want to stop there and say, Now is he turning into a hedonist, an Epicurean here? Well, Paul mentions that later on in his epistles, but I don't think that's what Solomon's saying here because he goes on and says, and this will stand by a man in his toils, this merriment, this enjoyment of life, throughout the days of his life which are done and which God has given him under the sun. That's why I call it the mystery of untimely pleasure. By that I mean in a world of undone justice, because we're going to experience that from time to time, when there comes these certain moments of unfair results, there's also a positive mystery in all that. It's this mystery of untimely pleasure that doesn't seem to fit with the moment. And yet God has given that too to balance life. 
It's like the soldier who's sitting in the foxhole with bombs raining all around him and, and blood and death. And in the midst of that, in a war he doesn't even understand, he looks down and he notices a small flower growing out of that foxhole. And for just a moment, he enjoys the goodness of life in that one little flower. It's like the, uh, the man who's terminally ill and he's got his friends around him, and yet he can put all that aside and enjoy his friends and his family and tell stories and they can laugh, they can cry and they can hug and they can enjoy the moment that's really a moment of death. Go figure. But if you make one moment the moment of all life and let it enshroud your life in death and darkness, you haven't learned how to manage it properly. This comes with the mystery of untimely pleasure. There's a certainty in this text, not just mystery, there are some certainties. And I want to commend that to you, probably if you were alert, you notice I skipped verse 12 and 13. Go back there because here's something that Solomon wants us to know within these mysteries. He wants to tell us there is something you can know. It says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, now listen, here it is, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear His name. I know this. But it will not be well for the evil man. And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. And it's because he does not fear God. Would you write this phrase down in your notes? If you don't remember anything else I say today, just write down that phrase in verse 12. I know it will be well for those who fear God. There are mysteries I'm not going to understand, but there will be a certainty I can understand. And I can embrace it and continually move towards God with it. And here's what I want you to hear me say. I've been through a lot of mysteries with people that are tragedies. I've experienced them, my own, one of which I just mentioned. But I want you to know, it's well. It is well for those who fear God. It's good. And the other mysteries, the positive mysteries of His involvement in my life and His offering of grace and His untimely moments of pleasure, they're all there mixed with everything else. Built on a foundation of stability where life is predictable as we sow and reap. You begin to get the picture of life now? I want to add three additional comments that go along with these certainties because as perplexing as the equations sometimes are in life, the righteous man finds out that God is good and that God is in control and that God will uphold and honor and save those who fear His name. And he will understand something else but by faith at the end of time. Three things I want to mention as I close. He will understand that though his grappling with the mysteries won't be complete in this day, he will have full understanding one day. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Isn't that a great statement about life? Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall fully know. I'll know it all, just as I have been fully known. And I can't wait for that day to put some of those mysteries together. Secondly, I may not have justice now, but one day there will be ultimate justice. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear. We must. We don't have a choice. We will be brought there. 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And there each one of us will be recompensed for every deed done in the body, whether it be good or bad. Life scales will be balanced. And then finally, it's not what I can't know that's important to me. <laughs> it's what I should know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, that we may observe all the words of this book. This book is the handbook for managing the mysteries of life. And by that, I want to tell you again, it's imperative that you know this book, that it become, for you, user-friendly. For without this book, you have no way of making sense out of the things that come across your path day to day, and certainly not when this major mystery is dropped into your lap from time to time. Which brings me to the ultimate mystery that's mentioned at the bottom of your outline. You know, after 25 years of serving Jesus Christ, I have a mystery in my life that I call the ultimate mystery, and it's this, and it's for those of you who've maybe come into our church and you've been here for a while, uh, maybe you've had a friend bring you and talk to you about how Christ has helped them in their life, and you've actually noticed some of the changes in their life, and you've heard an explanation of what it means to be a Christian, and maybe from your background, that wasn't real clear, and you're still uncomfortable. Like one man told me this week, he was still uncomfortable with even saying the phrase, I've given, uh, given Christ my life. Just didn't sound like Him. Maybe you're in that category. And, but you're here. And here's my mystery. What is it? What is it that's keeping you from giving Jesus Christ your life? With all that He is, with all the changes that He's made, with all the good that He's done, with all the historical evidences for who He is, for all the change you've seen in others, for all the understanding that you have. What is it for you to move from religion into Jesus Christ? <laughs> I'm not talking about church dabbling. I'm not talking about just attending, you know, church. I'm talking about the abandoned life. I'm talking about that it, it's, it's, it, it's, Jesus Christ has come to you in a way that there's no shame in being a Christian. In fact, you've moved so far away from shame, you're in enthusiasm. You're excited about the Christian life, and you're seeing the results of the Christian life, and you're believing God for His Word, and you're seeing Him meet you where you are, and you're seeing the benefits of that. And you know at a point in time, you know, you know, you know, you gave your life to Jesus Christ. What is it that's keeping you some of you, from doing that. There's an awful mystery there. Because when you begin to dig into it, it doesn't look real good. Can I close this this morning by just simply, I'm not going to make an appeal to come forward or anything like that today. But you know what I'd like to make an appeal to? I'd like for you to consider on this day, if you've never done that, that you come to a place where you move past religion or you move past uncertainty. You're not sure, you know, you've been in discovery and maybe somebody asked you how you became a Christian. You go, well, I, you know, I grew up a Presbyterian and, 
You know, but, but you never really kind of could finish the sentence with any enthusiasm. That's you. You want to know that you're Jesus Christ. He has offered Himself to the world. He's now offering Himself to the world. He's saying, I can change your life. All those promises are just sitting out there. And you've got to say, am I going to bind to that or not? But, but the mystery is you, not Him. He's absolutely clear. The mystery is in you. Would you like to solve that mystery today? You can solve it by just simply saying, Jesus Christ, I'm going for it. I'm going to give you my life and believe you and trust you from this day forward. And if you do that, He'll create another mystery. It's called the mystery of new birth. And you'll understand that. And you'll be the beneficiary of that. Not just now, but forever. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let me lead us in a prayer. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, would you pray this? Give yourself a chance to solve your mystery that might have attached to it sin and pride and arrogance and all kinds of other things, but somehow that's got to change. You can solve that. But it's entering the mystery of faith. Lord, we're not here in this moment to make an emotional appeal. Not here to beg. Certainly not to put pressure. We're just here recognizing that what you did when you came in this world and what you offer to this day is simply yourself. And all the glory of that, and dignity, all the forgiveness of that because you had to sacrifice yourself for us and all the promise of that, of eternal life, and whatever that means, because there's a veil in the beyond, and yet you've promised that we would enjoy that. Lord, in this moment, knowing all of that, having had that explained to me, I want to end the uncertainty of my life. And I want to say, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life to forgive me of my sin, to empower me with your presence. And I'm not just making a prayer. I'm giving my life to you. And I intend to aggressively pursue you and your truth. And Lord, I believe that if I do that, you will do what you promised to do and you will come to me. And you will begin to develop this mystery in me of eternal life. Today, I stake my life in the ground with a commitment to you. And I intend to pursue it vigorously by faith tomorrow. Father, I thank You for those who have said that this morning. I pray that in the weeks to come, they could look somebody in the eye and say, I became a Christian on Mother's Day of 1996. I know. Not by feelings, but because I gave my life to Jesus Christ. 
But I know even more certainly now, because in the weeks that followed, I'm beginning to discover that life in an experiential and personal way. I'm beginning to see truth like I've never seen it before. I pray that you'd do that for all those who have trusted you here this morning. Lord, bless our church. Bless our church with people who make those kind of commitments. Bring them to us. Let them develop and grow and flower into wonderful expressions of you in the likeness of you, in the mystery of you, because we intend to enjoy you forever. And Lord, as we close, thank you for moms too. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.